you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 10, as we'll look at verses 21 through 29. This past week, my wife and I traveled to Lawrence, Kansas, for a celebration of life for her uncle, her mom's brother, who passed away several months ago. And we got in the car to travel. Lawrence was about 10 hours from where we lived, and so off we went. And we were about an hour and a half down the road and my wife looked at me and she gave me one of those looks that just said, I just feel like we have forgotten something. And I said, well, it's the thing about a feeling. You don't really know what it is that you've left until you realize what it is that you've left. And I said, well, we didn't forget our kids. They weren't supposed to come. So we looked back there, they weren't there. They weren't they were where they were supposed to be. And so we kept driving another 10 minutes and got about an hour and a half north of our home. And I looked back in the back of the van, trying to find where I hung up my suit and my shirt and my wife's dress that I was gonna wear at the funeral yesterday. And then it dawned on me. I said, Haley, I realize what you forgot. We left our clothes that we were supposed to wear tomorrow and they are at home residing in our closet. That feeling that you had, we did forget and my wife just looked at me and she said, that's okay, I've been wanting to get a new dress anyway. I was the one responsible to put the clothes in the car and it was my fault and that wasn't my wife's deliberate attempt to get a new dress for a funeral. But she had that feeling, the feeling that something was wrong, that something was off. It's a feeling that often many of us can get from time to time. A feeling that something is missing and something is awry. Where when we get to our text today in Exodus 10, verse 21 in particular, there is a something that is palpable, that is felt. And let's read the word of the Lord this morning, verses 21 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. We find ourselves in the midst of the ninth plague, a plague of darkness, which plagued all the land of Egypt. Now to understand the significance of this moment right here in the life of Pharaoh and in the heart of the Egyptian people, we have to understand one thing in particular about how they viewed the sun and light in and of itself as well. You see, for the Egyptians, their creator that they worship wasn't just a god named Horus, who was the god of sunrise, or Aten, the god of the midday sun, or Atum, the god of the sunset. No, who they worshiped as their supreme being was a god by the name of Amon Re. And the Egyptians believed that he was their creator. He represented the hope of the resurrection for them. He represented eternal life. And so they worshiped him and sang songs to him and lit candles to him and they bowed down before him. Well, the Egyptians through time later began to believe that Pharaoh actually was the legitimate son of this supreme being. 
that he was this ultimate God in whom they worshiped. And so Pharaoh was often called the son of Ray. He was the legitimate son who ruled and reigned as the hand of Amon Ray, the embodiment of who he was. His, their king was the incarnation of their supreme king and they worshiped this mortal man as an immortal God. But Pharaoh, as we know, was nothing but an imposter. He was a great pretender and so he pretended. And so when the Lord comes to this moment and this scene of this ninth plague, this ninth sign and wonder, what the Lord is doing is he is deliberately seeking to undermine the heart of the God, the supreme God to whom the Egyptians worshiped. And so the Lord commands Moses to stretch out his hand and bring the darkness into the land, a darkness that is to be felt. I think many of us perhaps miss this moment oftentimes because we perhaps don't necessarily put ourselves in utter and pure darkness. Even in our bedrooms at night, there's often porch lights on or street lights outside that come into our window. Very rarely are we ever in places where we can't see our hand in front of us. And yet in this moment, Moses stretches out his hand towards the heavens and that this darkness comes and this darkness is felt. It was this claustrophobic feeling. It was this claustrophobic notion of absolute darkness, darkness they could feel and a silence that they could hear. It reminds me of the scene in 1 King where Elijah has just defeated the prophets of Baal and he flees. And we find Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he's afraid and he's in a cave, deep within the cave and the Lord begins to appear to him and there's this interchange where the writer begins to describe what it was that the Lord did and in verse 12 of 19 it says, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Silence that could be heard. A feeling that was there amongst and, in, and amidst the darkness. It's like a, a pain that you feel when, when you hunger for something. When you long to eat something, to be satisfied and in some way, this darkness was to be felt. So he stretches out his hand towards the heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land. For three days. For three days, you can imagine the scene that the Egyptians just stood there not being able to access lights and flashlights, not being able to flip a switch and morning, noon and night, everywhere these Egyptians went, there was darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Can you imagine the conversations around the dinner table and in the living rooms of the Egyptians? not being able to, to see the faces of loved ones, of spouses, of children, but for three days they did not rise from their place. All the while what God was doing in this moment, this reminder that he was undermining Pharaoh and he was undermining the gods of the Egyptians in order to set his people free. And so Moses stretches out his hand, the darkness comes, but notice at the end of verse 23, as we have seen throughout these plagues, the Israel, People, God's people, the Israelites, were not affected, for they had lights where they lived. Now, throughout the scripture, when we see this phrase darkness, it often signifies several different things for God's people. 
It signifies that there is error and there is wrongdoing. It signifies that there is ignorance in the midst of the land. It it signifies the rebellion that is before him. Everything that God is opposed to here in this moment, God creates the death and the sin and the ignorance before his people, bringing this ignorance out onto display in the life of Pharaoh and in the hearts of the Hebrews. Showing the error of his ways. Writer of Proverbs says in 419 that the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. And so here in this moment, God, without shining light, but rather bringing forth darkness, he exposes the sin and the ignorance of Pharaoh and his people. And so the Israelites have the light and then notice what it says in verse 24, then Pharaoh called Moses and he said, go and serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. The first time I read that this week, I was struck by Pharaoh's inclination to now finally allow Moses to take his women and children, but telling Moses that in this moment, you must keep your possessions here. You can't take your possessions with you to to worship and to offer the sacrifices that you want. No, they will stay here and they will remain with me, your flocks and your herds and the things that you possess. And so it poses a great question for God's people. You see, Moses was desiring to go into the wilderness to worship and to offer the sacrifice and, and to take his possessions, to take his family. And we have seen this notion And what the reminder is here in this moment is how we as God's people are to view our own possessions, our own things that God has given us and allowed us to have in those moments. And here's what we must understand about the things that God gives us. Some things meant to be used ultimately for his glory, some things meant to be used for our enjoyment and and God delights in those things. But what we must understand as a people, the brevity of our lives, and that when we understand how brief our lives are, then we can order our lives around our possessions in the proper way. When we realize that this life is but a vapor and a moment passing in time and and here we are in light of eternity and so God gives good gifts to his children, to his people and he says, steward them for my namesake. To view all that you have under the authority of, of what God has done and the question that then comes is, well then how do we use those things in the wrong way? Sometimes we can use our possessions by simply just boasting about them, being braggadocious about what we have or perhaps we worry about what we don't have or we worry about losing those things or we run to our possessions to bring comfort to us at times. We overspend to indulge ourselves when we don't have the means to do that. These Possessions can create this discontentment in the heart of God's people. We can use them wrongly when we become consumed about acquiring more and stockpiling. You see, the point of our possessions is not to adorn our life on this side of the cross, but to live in such a way that we show that we can't bring the stuff with us. And so in this moment, Pharaoh tells Moses, you can't bring your stuff with you. And Moses has a response to that because Moses understands the totality of the things that they have. And and notice what Moses says in verse 25. You must also let us have sacrifices 
You must also let us have our burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God because these things are not our things. They are the Lord's. Our livestock, verse 26, must also go with us and not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive. And so in other words, what Moses says to Pharaoh is we will take all that is ours. And we will bring it into the house of the Lord and we will bring it into a place of of worship. But the Lord, verse 27, hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh says to him, now this, Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. All of what we have seen in the book of Exodus leading to this final moment, this culmination on display, this last interaction, this fracturing of this relationship that existed. And in this moment, Pharaoh says, if you see me again, you will, Moses, surely die. Severing the relationship severing the access to one another and how they would speak to one another. You see, the heart of Pharaoh in this moment is that Pharaoh was demonstrating his unwillingness to allow God to have complete and total control. What Pharaoh was demonstrating in this moment was the idolatry that existed within his own heart, that he was the incarnation. He was the one who who had come and was born of this great God and deity that they so worshiped. And he was the one to give the orders and he was the one to control. And so God is undermining Pharaoh's kingdom over and over and over and over again. All because of the idolatry that existed within Pharaoh's heart. And that in turn leads to the idolatry that exists within the hearts of the Egyptians. You see, what God is doing in this moment is he is not just freeing the Hebrews from the bondage of slavery and sin at the hand of Pharaoh, but he is also teaching a broader message to his people for we are instructed to tell this story and to talk about this story. Why? Because this story is ultimately pointing to the fact that God through Christ has delivered us from our sin. He's delivered us from our shame and our condemnation. He has set us free. We were once captives to that thought. We were once captives to that darkness, but he has brought us into the light. He has redeemed his people. As we've said over the past few weeks, we in these stories, we are not the Hebrew people. We are not Moses and we are not Aaron, but more more and more we find ourselves really in the place of Pharaoh with hearts that are unwilling to give God perhaps complete and total control, to trust him and to walk in obedience. The idols that exist within our own lives, whether it be control or other things, it could be things like lack of forgiveness. It controls us our unwillingness to forgive, places that we run to as we seek comfort in things other than the Lord our God. People that we run to, looking for approval in all the wrong places. These are the things that that captivate and control us, the, the things that make us bitter in life. 
the circumstances that perhaps didn't quite go our way, the thing in our life that, that we wish we could change the most of, and so we are consumed by that thought and that idea, and it controls us. These are how we diagnose the idols that exist deep within our hearts. For I don't think that many of us would bow down and worship statues and bow down and worship these types of false gods, but these gods exist deep within the confines of our hearts. And oftentimes when we look for the idolatry that exists, Pharaoh's being control, but perhaps yours is control or what is yours this morning? You see, idols often drive our behavior and they command our emotions. They control the things that we feel and, and the things that we think about. They consume us in every which way. And in this moment, Pharaoh was consumed again. The Lord hardens his heart and he would not let them go. And he tells Moses, out and away from me, you go. For if you see me again, you will surely die. And so Moses says, I, fine. I will not see your face again. But see, we see that phrase in Pharaoh's life again. He hardens his heart. He hears truth and he hears the word and yet he responds not by obedience, but rather by hardening and digging in and becoming more stubborn and even more callous. His responsibility, and we see this fracturing of this relationship that exists within Moses and Pharaoh, but more in particular that it exists now between Pharaoh and God. Friend, this morning I would simply ask you, in your relationships with the Lord first and foremost, are you right with God this morning? And if you're right with God this morning, then why are you wrong with people around you? You see, if we are truly right with our Lord and we love him and we are in relationship with him, then we pursue to be agents of reconciliation in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. We don't fracture relationships to the point to which Pharaoh says, get out of my house and, and take care to never see my face again. And he takes up this great offense. I couldn't help but think this week as I thought about this last little interchange between Pharaoh and Moses, that perhaps there are some of you that are here today that have taken up great offense with other people. And maybe you've never gotten to the point where you threatened to kill someone or to take their life, but maybe you have just simply just said, I will have nothing to do with them ever again. And can I just say to you gently and kindly and pastorally a couple of things. Number one, I think in being agents of reconciliation, unlike Pharaoh in this moment, we must first understand that we are sinners first and sinned against second. We are sinners first. We are men and women with feet of clay and, and there are mistakes that are made and all across and in this room, we are sinners first and sinned against second. Oftentimes in the fracturing of relationships, we flip those two. We've been sinned against rather than acknowledging really who we are and where we stand outside of the confines of Christ. And so we take up this anger that we see within Pharaoh's tone as he talks to Moses to telling him to get away and, and to take care that you never see me again. 
It seems like this righteous anger, if you will, and and we can be a people full of righteous anger at times, but a couple of things that we should note is that righteous anger is always, and I mean always, redemptive and never vindictive. It never threatens someone, it doesn't raise its voice at someone, that it seeks to redeem the relationship and to redeem the person. Not to get even, not to get ahead. Righteous anger is redemptive and never vindictive. Righteous anger is always short-lived as well. That we don't live in a constant state of hostility. We don't live in a constant state of of bitterness and anger and resentment. Righteous anger is always short-lived. But thirdly and finally, righteous anger, it is always under control. It never loses it to the point where We get to the place of Pharaoh in this moment and we say, get away, and the threats are made and the accusations are made and the innuendo exists. It is always under control. You see, what Pharaoh failed to realize in this moment that he was soon about to begin to realize is the same truth that you and I must discover this morning, that getting rid of anger and and bitterness is more about your relationship with God than it is about your relationship with the other person. The problem here in this moment was not Moses' relationship with Pharaoh, but rather it existed solely and primarily with Pharaoh's relationship with the Lord our God. And so Pharaoh, failing to understand this, failing to forgive the fracturing that exists, the Lord hardens his heart, and now we enter into the darkest of the plagues, the ultimate judgment. And so God begins to honor his promise and he begins to go forth with his word. You see, when we practice forgiveness as God's people, unlike Pharaoh in this moment, unlike Pharaoh all throughout this book, as God issues his righteous judgment on his people and on the Egyptians, when we forgive, when we practice a heart of of obedience and a heart of humility before him, what we're doing is we're not saying that what the person did to us was wrong, uh, was, was getting off the hook. We're not saying that what they didn't do to us was bad and that it shouldn't be done. We're, we're just simply acknowledging that it's not our offense and our hook to carry, but it's God's. And so we count it against. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. I don't know who this morning needs to hear that, but it is to your glory and to mine. It is to my glory to overlook. It is to your glory to overlook. To be in this moment humble as Christ was humble, to understand that in order to bring us into the light of his kingdom, Christ enters into our darkness. Luke 24, verse 23, 44, it says that darkness comes over the whole land. And this was spiritually significant in this moment because it showed us that Jesus had taken upon himself our guilt and our sin and that he was under the curse of sin in that moment that was reserved solely for God's enemies. The judgment. And he goes into the grave and on the third day he emerges and he is shown forth in a a body, in in a state that is covered and adorned in God's light. Out from the grave he arose. For he says that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is faithful and that it is true. And the Father, that we can sing about your truths and we can speak and preach about your truths. But Lord, as your people, we acknowledge this morning that apart from your spirit working in our hearts, apart from your saving work through your son, Jesus, we would be just like Pharaoh. And so Father, I pray that today that anyone who is here today that is not trusted, not obeyed, not listened to your voice, to your word, I pray that today would be perhaps the day of their salvation, that you would redeem them and Father, that you would save them. For I ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.